This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. jazz welcome to the artists as godard said you don't make a movie the movie makes you in our movie making profession the workings of murphy's law is always at its best in these candid conversations we unravel those challenges that define the makers in the movie making business hope these chats will inspire and elevate you to keep fighting for your dreams but with a mode of reality check on it i'm your host suchita and this podcast is brought to you by metaphysical lab enjoy the show We are truly grateful that we are able to do this podcast from the safe confines of our spaces and hopefully bring you content that will enrich your lives. As always, you can reach us on our WhatsApp number, you can talk to us, you can give us suggestions. And this time we got a lot of suggestions. So thank you guys and of course thank you for liking our last episode with the director of Elo Elo, Anthony Chen. I happened to bump into this course, 40 Days to Learn Film. so passionately and thoughtfully done by filmic cousins if you haven't checked out this course which is available on vimeo please do so we're going to add that in the description as well i was also fortunate enough to see uh, one of mark's latest film women make film which is a documentary this marathon piece of work that spans 13 decades and five continents to give a guided tour of the art and craft of movies as told by female filmmakers and one cannot miss this exquisite piece of work something that every filmmaker needs to have it in their library so you can definitely get envious uh, of me because it's not immediately available in india specifically but in uk if you guys are there bfi is releasing that in the month of may also i was fortunate to see mark's other film The Eyes of Orson Welles which is a 3 hour long film about his deep love for Orson Welles and also is another work a story of children and film which got premiered in Cannes Mark has done mammoth work in films and you can definitely find him on Twitter Mark Cousins you can find more about him on his IMDb page with the same name Hi Mark, uh, welcome to the podcast The Artist. Thank you for taking out time. Uh, I'm so grateful. And uh, let me start with how are things there in the lockdown? Uh thank you Sashita. Uh things are okay. I'm here in Edinburgh, Scotland. It things are very bad down in England and London. Uh it's not as bad here, not as big an infection rate here. Spring is coming of course. Uh it's it's sunny and we want to get outside into the hills of Scotland but we can't. <laughs> sure I'm I'm sure it will improve in the next coming days. Uh yeah. I've been taking your course Mark on 40 days to learn films it is so amazing. Thank you for the course. The re- response has been overwhelming. Everyone's been talking about it. I know it's a surprise when 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 the lockdown started, you know, I'm not a doctor or a nurse so I can't give any practical help and I thought how could I contribute a little something and I knew lots of people teaching film or trying to t- teach remotely and they were looking for new digital materials so i sat here at my desk where i'm sitting now talking to you and mm. improvised and talked for a couple of hours about films and visual culture and things and uh, maybe it's the you know sometimes something improvised 
can seem fresher, and maybe that's why it has connected with people. And of course, uh, you also sponsored a lot of uh, a lot of uh, film students, filmmakers from the developing uh, countries uh, to get uh, to watch films on movie and a lot of other things. Yeah, I felt that again. You know, I should try and contribute. To film organizations are suffering. Film magazines are yeah. suffering. So, I I just went on Twitter and I offered fifty people whoever. Um, came to me first, not from rich countries. Uh, I said, I'll pay for you for a subscription from Mubi or to Sight and Sound, the great film magazine. And lots and lots of people replied, the majority of them from India, actually. And so I think there are now about 40 people in India who have Mubi subscriptions. Wow. Mark, uh, in the podcast, I've often asked, uh, in fact, that was one of the reasons uh, to do the podcast was that uh, why do filmmakers want to make films? Uh, a lot of a lot, lot of people come to Mumbai, in, especially in, in, in our country, wanting to become directors, actors, and they mostly consider it as a glam profession. <laughs> why did, uh, what was your reason of wanting to make uh, your films? I just had to, you know, I never was interested in the glamorous side of film or the money side of film. You know, a lot of people who want to make films or a lot of people who love films are actually quite shy, I think, and quite nervous. Yes. And you can hide behind a camera. You can be your bigger self. You can lead a kind of dream self when you're filmmaking. And so the people who want who want to get in it for the glamour or the money or the fast cars, you know, well, good luck to them. But that's not where it is. It Film is an intimate medium and it's a profoundly creative medium and I just wanted desperately to make films you know that the creative instinct the instinct to make some put something in the world that wasn't previously there whether it's a pasta sauce or a table or a big movie <laughs> mm-hmm. is very very powerful instinct and uh, from the time like you when you made uh, your f- the first movie to now when you made women make film Has that reason changed, grown, evolved? Yeah, that's a very good question. So she did the desire to make imagery remains the same. But in the year in the years that I've been directing, the technology has changed completely. Yes. When I started directing at the end of the 1980s, um, I needed a big crew and lots of equipment and and loads of people, mostly guys, of course. It was quite a macho world, you know, and so. It was harder to make a personal, intimate cinema, but now I can. My phone, for example, has a gorgeous 4K slow mo camera on it, and so the kind of the the desire to make films has changed. It's much closer now to painting or writing a novel. I think certainly for the kind of cinema that I make, it's personal, it's intimate, it's creative. You don't need people's permission so much you know in the film industry we talk about getting the green light you sort of don't need the green light so much and so that uh, i think it means that the horizons are even broader the creative possibilities are almost infinite now it's a great time to be a filmmaker yes absolutely mark uh, most of your films uh, of course you've made fiction you've made documentaries uh, but mostly tilted towards documentaries and uh, the last time when we were had this very brief conversation was that it's tilted towards the poetic and mythic aspect of telling the story so uh, so when you actually decide to make a documentary uh, versus a fiction, uh, what are the what is the difference between the two of it? 
I don't think there is a lot of difference between fiction and documentary when you come down to it. Um, when I think of my favorite filmmakers from India, for example, someone like mm-hmm. Mani Paul or Ritvik Guttak or Satyajit Ray or, or um, Gurudat, for example, you know, they are often using their own lives or blurring the boundaries um, between fiction and non-fiction. And if you think of the whole history of literature, the bl- the boundaries are quite blurred. If you look at the great painters, think of Frida Kahlo, for example, the way she used her own body and her own life in her art. So I think the boundaries between documentary and fiction cinema are boundaries that the industry understands, the money people understand, the commercial understand. But from a creative point of view, there isn't such a strong difference, I think. So any specific uh, elements that you use in terms of uh, when you're doing a fiction and when you're doing a documentary, are there similar elements that you pay attention to? Yes, I think, you know, there are some filmmakers, you know, some of the best filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, for example, who Mm. like to create an entire world Mm -hmm. almost from scratch. You know, they are almost like a god creating a universe, you know. And But uh, Alfred Hitchcock famously said in fiction, the director is God, but in documentary, God is the director. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a nice, a nice reversal. Yes. And I think that, you know, what, whether I'm making a fiction or a documentary, what I'm looking for is a good image, an image that I haven't seen before, a scene that rings true emotionally, that has got a kind of realism about it, but is nonetheless an image. It's not like literature. It's, it's starting with visual thinking. And that's where the excitement happens. That's where the magic happens. And when you get that image. In the eyes of Orson Welles, Yes. And also in women make film, uh, which yes. is like which I'm still which is which is brilliant. What is your process? How do you start with this kind of research that you do, the detailing that you get in the films, the visual elements that you get? How how does it all come together? I think that's the the key question in a way. Um, and for me, the answer is that it starts with the form. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Orson Welles film that yeah. I made, there were loads, there have been loads of films and books about the famous Orson Welles. Yes. But once I realized that I could use a distinctive form, and the, then I knew I had a film, and the form is a letter to Orson Welles that begins, Dear Orson Welles. And yeah. I thought, I haven't seen that before. And the, therefore, the idea started with the form. In the case of Women Make Film, which is... Um, a 14-hour-long film. Yes. I had to ask myself the question, how do I, what is my story here? The conventional thing, the TV style, would be to choose maybe 40 women filmmakers, tell their lives, tell the stories of how they struggled with the industry and how they got to make some films, but they had to battle sexism, etc. That's a great story, but it's not the story that I wanted to tell. Mm. I wanted to only at their work. And so I decided if I could break my film into 40 chapters, each chapter like a book asking a question. So again, I had the form. So a lot of filmmakers or a lot of people in general start with the content, but I much prefer to start with the form. And what was the criteria of choosing these women in Women Make Film? Um, well, I, want, I wanted to put the famous 
female filmmakers into my film. And as you know, the famous female filmmakers in the world are people like Agnes Varda, Catherine Bigelow, Jane Campion, etc. I knew they should be in there. But I was also really interested in showing people how many other great female filmmakers there have been from yeah. Australia in the 20s, from yeah. um, all around the world, from France and Germany in the 30s, when you get to the 50s, Korea, many places, India in the 60s, on and on and on. And, and it was, you know, the initial, the initial title for this film was Eye Opener, which I liked because the idea was it would open our eyes to a whole world of cinema, films directed by women that we didn't know about. I mm -hmm. wanted to shock people, excite people, surprise them. And so that's how I chose filmmakers who weren't well-known, who had done great work, but whose names are not well-known. Yes, and, and, and how much time did it take for you to research on this film? Well, I um, it's hard to answer that because I've been watching films directed by women for since the late... 90s maybe even the mid 90s and so I've been you know you accumulate knowledge in your head and you don't know where it's going to go or what it's going to be used for but you just store it somewhere yeah. and so for, for a very long time I've been seeing and getting excited by films directed by women but then more specifically about I suppose about four and a half years ago now long before Weinstein or anything like that yeah. my producer my producer and I wanted to really try and do something about this. So at that point, um, I started watching many films and my editor, Timo, started watching uh, films on my behalf and a great researcher, producer in London, Sonali, she started watching films for me as well. And so that period of watching was probably one year, one and a half years, something like that. And this whole idea of making this mammoth piece of work, 17 hours of work, I'm like, wow. How did you sell the idea to your producer? What did you tell him? Was it easy? Well, no, because we had before my producer, John, and I had done the story of film, which was a 16-hour film, and it, it had done pretty well around the world. It was shown in many countries. Mm -hmm. And we're both, we're both quite, we want to challenge some of the common assumptions today. There's a, an assumption that people think young people's attention spans are short. Everybody just wants to watch a YouTube clip or a video clip. And we made a very long piece, the story of film, and people wanted to watch the long form, you know, the box set, the 50-hour on unraveling slow story. And so we became confident that people, if the story is good enough, if the storytelling is interesting enough, then you can make long form work. And what I also thought, thought in addition is if we want to actually pay tribute and do justice to the great history of female directors, and we can't just do a quick summary. You know, yes. We have to dive deep and we have to show the epic nature of this story. This is a huge you know, tradition in our culture, in our film culture, our cinema culture, the female directors, and it's a buried tradition. It's a hidden tradition. And we wanted to unearth it and really show the scale of it. And that's why we had to make a 14-hour film. It could have been longer, actually. Yeah, it, it's, it's brilliant. So how long, it, it, how long did you take to make this? I'm just so fascinated by the film. <laughs> I'm in awe of it. <laughs> it was hard work. You know, we had no funding and nobody, no TV station, no institute, no 
you know, no public sector funding of any sort. So we did it without any funding. And that was scary, of course, because no. years of no funding. But it also gave us total intellectual and creative freedom. We mm-hmm. could cover whatever we wanted. There was no pressure on us only to focus on the famous directors. Mm-hmm. And um, we, I would write every morning uh, from 7 o'clock till 9.30 and then my editor would come into here into the office and we would I would record my voice immediately and he and I would match the film clips to my voice mm-hmm. and we'd do that day after day, week after week. Wow, wow. And we stopped and started a bit because it's really an exhausting process and the hardest thing about something like this is to boil it down. You know when you're making a good soup, you want to boil it down to its essence. Yes. And um, to, you know, in in this film, I deal with th- like nearly a thousand films and I, could, I didn't have the time to tell the story of each film. So you have to get the essence of the story yes. in two sentences and really feel, make people feel that they're in the scene that they're looking in, in a couple of sentences. So that's economy, you know, not using loads of la- words, using as simple a language as possible, as pure a language as possible. And and, uh, and of course, uh, how, how long it, t- it took uh, to make, to get them absolutely right, concise right there? Um, well, overall, I would say if you add the editing period up, it was probably one or two years editing, something like that. We stopped and started and mm. then we did some more. Um, it was, it's... We couldn't do it all in a run because it takes too much. I would be exhausted by three o'clock in the afternoon yes. doing this, you know, because you have to work really efficiently. You can't take a long time. And um, so probably, probably, let's say one and a half years of editing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then what did you think, you know, after these films, while you were while, while you were making these films, uh, women in Women Make films, the primary or the key difference between a movie directed by a male and a movie directed by a woman? Well, I think, you know, after watching thousands of films directed by women, I would say there are no key differences mm-hmm. between how a woman directs and how a man directs. Sure. And I feel, quite, I feel quite passionate about this. I hear lots of generalizations mm-hmm. about women being different or the female gaze or, you know, you hear lots of people saying people, women make more films about children or about relationships or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is simply not true. You know, the women have made great, made great war movies, historical epics, sci-fi pictures, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think if we generalize about the sort of films that women can make, we're also generalizing generalizing about men and women as well. Mm-hmm. And too many of our community, our brothers and sisters and friends, do not fit into these categories. And we imprison people, I feel, by saying men are, are like this and women are like that. And I think we have to get out of our prisons. And, you know, the people that I worked with in the voiceover for Women Make Film, Tilda Swinton, Jane Fonda, Shamila Tagore, some of the greatest women in cinema, they don't believe in these gender stereotypes. They don't believe in saying a woman can do this and a man can do that. And that really uh, inspired me in a way to make sure that I didn't make generalizations either. And Mar, do you think we're heading in, uh, in the times where women will be given more power to make films? It'll be easier for them to make films? Yes, I mean, the re- revolution is, is happening too slowly, but it is happening. And uh, we can see a large increase in the number of women getting to direct cinema, uh, in particularly in America, where 
it has been really quite bad. There were only a handful of direct female directors for a long time. So things are improving. They're moving in the right direction. You know, a 15-year-old girl in Mumbai, where you are, or in Edinburgh, where I am, is more likely to get her hands on a camera and more likely to get to tell her story than when I was young or whatever. So that's good, but it's not enough. And it's not only about who's directing, but it's about who's choosing content, who's running the studios, who's writing the checks. And we need 50-50 and all those things. Otherwise, we'll get, we'll continue to get, to get men in positions of power, giving money to films that, that represent their worldview alone and not the worldview of half the population of the planet. Marky Rorvis, uh, you've, you've often spoken about getting or bringing the mythic element into your work. Yes. How do you bring that mythic element in your work? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I very much respect journalism and current affairs and the kind of storytelling that's trying to say the, talk about the here and now, the moment, what's happening in society and economics. The mythic element does something di different. It deals with archetypes. It deals with big hidden structures in our lives, mm. more related to our dream lives, more related to our sense of being part of something more mystical. I'm not religious, but I certainly have a strong feeling for nature and landscape and trees and oceans and things. And these kind of mythic elements, which you get a lot, of course, in Indian culture and in European culture, these are the underlying things that uh, give a film a kind of invisible emotion or a hidden weight. And so again and again, when I'm making a film, I'm looking for a kind of mythic structure. So I made a film about the atomic age, but its structure was paradise, paradise lost, paradise regained. And so that immediately helped in the editing and everything. So we knew if you use that structure, you start with a film which is quite happy and then it falls into a kind of hell or sadness or despair, which is the paradise lost bit. And then it tentative, tentatively recovers, which is the paradise regained bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you look at these more mythic structures, they're so valuable. They're in lots of our traditional classical texts, and we can really use them to animate and invigorate our stories of the present day. Mm -hmm. And also, you've often mentioned in a narrative, uh, especially in Women Make Films, about being in the zone, about the flow, about tapping the unconscious, that is the function of the stories. Yes. How do you do that in your films? Yeah, well, you need to distract yourself. I think this is, a, you know, your brain is working now and my brain is working now. And it's sort of thinking for us, you know. Yeah. If we can switch our brains off, if we can distract them, if we can ask them to do some more menial task, you know, like type an email or something, then our unconscious brain, which is the really... Um, uncensored, wild, creative bit of ourselves, that unconscious brain can really do the work. When you're when when that brain is working, you feel like you're in a zone. It's what sports people talk about being yes. in a zone. You know, you're not in control almost. You're flying, you're on, you're surprising yourself. You don't know what you're gonna think or come up with next. And to be creative is to try and surprise yourself. 
So it's, you know, as adults, we think we have to behave a certain way with a kind of propriety and we have to, I don't know, fit in with society. Mm-hmm. But I always think that I always try to connect, to tap into my childlike self, which is less censored. It's more interested in fun and joy and escape and play. And all those things, fun, joy, escape and play, are really close to creativity, I think. And, you know, famously, Pablo Picasso, the great painter, Mm. says that all children are artists. And I think that's true, you know, and I sort of try to escape my adult self Mm. and my rational brain to try and connect with other things which are more fun, more inventive and less expected. Sure. What are the choices in your career that you took and which you left, which have, which has made you right now in the position that you are in? Yeah, um, I have. My choices have been to walk away from lots of things. Yeah, yeah. So I was briefly uh, working in the BBC. Yeah. Uh, big broadcaster of course and I left mm-hmm. I was actually directing from I was directing from 1988 actually so 20 years before that uh, I was then I was the director of here of the Edinburgh Film Festival which is one of the oldest in the world and I walked away from that after two years and I've been I think that it's, it sounds negative to say that my best choices have been walking away from stuff mm-hmm. but in each case I found that Leaving an institution made me free, mm-hmm. and I always, always valued my freedom to try and be as inventive as I could. Uh, a key choice for me, so walking away was the first thing. Mm-hmm. A, a key choice for me uh, with my partner, Jill, was to drive from here where I'm sitting to Mumbai, where yes. you are. Uh, and to drive a third of the way around the world like that was a huge choice we jumped in our camper van and drove from this door to Kolaba and well actually wow. further south we went down to Kerala, Karnataka etc awesome. and um, how, how did you do that without a google map you know without a phone <laughs> <laughs> well it's quite it's quite easy because it's southeast from me to you so you get up in the morning and you head for the sun yeah. The sun's always in the southeast, so you don't. It's quite, it's quite easy. I mean, when you get to the big cities like Istanbul or Tehran, wow. you know you can get lost. And as you know, it's not too easy to drive through Mumbai. No, but we did it, and and but what that did was change, switch the center of geography in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, here in Europe, we are brought up. Our education teaches us about European culture and American culture, mm. and the set. If you're interested in art or cinema, you're really taught about Hollywood, New York, Paris, London, etc. Maybe Berlin, mm. um, but. We are taught almost nothing about the about Eastern culture or Southern Hemisphere culture. By doing that trip, I I shed I I it gave me a context for the what I'd been taught, and it gave me all sorts of new things to be fascinated by. You know, so once you've been to Esfahan in uh, Iran, your life changes. Once you've been to Mandu, your life changes. You know, once you've been to you know, Elora and Ajanta, then your life changes, you know, because you've seen, you've got a new timeline, you've mm-hmm. got a new 
image system. And so that was a huge choice to do that drive. And I've, I've, tra- I've been lucky enough to travel all around the world in my work. But that on the ground drive with no money, staying in cheap hotels or sleeping in our van, encountering real people in the in-between places in Kurdistan and in the visit villages of Iran and in the villages of the Deccan Plateau. Wow. Really humanized us and really gave us a perspective and um, a kind of suspicion of how our Western media talks about the world. Wow. And how long did it take for you to drive? I mean, did you get, didn't you get, uh, in, what about passports? What about other things? I just, it's unfathomable. <laughs> yeah, there, there was quite a lot of paperwork. We did it uh, during, when, during our trip, 9-11 happened. Um, so there were various wow. issues, but there's quite a lot of paperwork really. And particularly in certain countries, I have to say India, the bureaucracy of bringing yeah. a, a vehicle into India, you know, it took us, I think two weeks to get our vehicle out of the docks in Mumbai. Oh my so God. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, there was quite a bit of backsheesh involved as well, as you can imagine. But, um, you know, it even that, even the frustrations of traveling across borders yeah. are boring because you, you encounter the humanity of officials sometimes. So in Iran, once we, we had parked our car in the wrong place. And it's a big, it was a, it's, it's a very old 1970s van, but it was very visible. A policeman came up to us and said, you're parked in the wrong place. And we thought we were going to get, a, get us a fine. Do you know what he did? He gave us two pomegranates to apologize <laughs> for having to tell us to move our car. Oh my God! How awesome! How awesome! Yeah. You fall in love with the world when you do that, even though there are loads of frustrations. Uh, we, you get sick and all sorts of things, and but it, you sort of fall in love with the world, and you become a citizen of nowhere, and you certainly don't believe in the kind of nationalist argument that my country is better than other countries and you know every country lots of countries in the world including india of course is currently got political leaders who are saying we are the best yeah we are special yeah and nowhere is special and nowhere is the center of the world yes and, and how long this is so fascinating how long it took for you to reach from edin uh, from scotland to uh, mumbai <laughs> well, we took our time. So it was about four and a half months before we got to Mumbai. Oh, my but God. we really took, like, we took two weeks in Italy alone, you know, and Italy is not yeah. a lot big. So, you know, we were in no rush. We took, it took as long as it would take. Some countries we were limited, like in in Iran, we were only had a visa for 21 days, and Iran is really very big. So we had to drive fast. But once we got to India, we slowed right down and just took our time. Awesome. This is a great story. So walk away and drive around the world. Yes, I think so. I think they're the two key things. And a third thing for me is is always, uh, I always think of this quotation from Robert Bresson, the great French filmmaker. Yes. And he, oh, he I, I, I've never forgotten it. And it says, try to show that which without you might never have been seen. And it's simple advice. And But what he's trying to say is, if you're trying to make something, whether it's a film or a book or anything, try to show something that people haven't seen before. You mm-hmm. know, an emotion, a landscape, a way of life, an object. And I think as human beings, we are always rejuvenated and attracted to new things, whether it's the new life that I can see outside my window because the spring is coming, mm-hmm. or new, sto- new stories or new adventures. And I think that has been a key thing for me. So, for example, 
in my Orson Welles film. Mm-hmm. I, made an Orson, I made a kind of Orson Welles film that nobody had made before. Yes. A letter to Orson Welles. In my Women Make film, nobody had done that before. And yes. I tried in my work, in anything I do, to use a form or a style or an approach that has not been used before. Mark, uh, in your, uh, in your uh, video, 40 Days to Learn film, it's yes. all about how to see, how to enhance your perceptions, the way, yes. the way you show it to us, make us see things, the color, yes. the yes. framing. It's so beautiful. How can a filmmaker constantly work on enhancing their perceptions of seeing uh, how do you work on it? Like, of course, you've you've mentioned in the earlier, in earlier of my questions about how to enhance your, uh, you know, everyday living. But is there specific things that you do, like maybe a photography, maybe observe a painting for hours? Yeah, um, I think that you know, I can understand totally the appeal of looking at the same thing again. You yes, know, looking at the the. You, the, ch- the face of your child or the, the person that you're in love with. Yes. And the, the street in which I live, I must have walked it 10,000 times and I still love it. But for me, it's more important to see new things. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I was talking recently in a British newspaper. I wrote that I don't watch films twice and I got a, a load of people coming back to me saying, but the pl- it's so enjoyable to watch the same film again and again. And I said, yeah, I know it's enjoyable, but there are many other pleasures in life uh, that I could also be enjoying and they're not rep- repetitive. So if you don't look at a same, the same film again, if you don't look at the same painting multiple times, then you've got time in your life to look at new things. And so, for example, during the lockdown, during this crisis that we're all undergoing, mm-hmm. I've been determined. Lots of people are watching their favorite films, their old classics, and their you know their Hollywood musicals, etc. That's cool. Watch Cholet a thousand times if you want. How wonderful! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Watch Fool a thousand times if you want. Watch the classics. But for me, I've been determined just to watch stuff I haven't seen, and that's what I've been doing every day. Watching films I hadn't seen before. Not you know arty stuff. It's you know, comedies and animations and all different things. But it means that each day I'm seeing something new. And each day that means that in my head, if if in all our heads there's a kind of photo album of all the things we've seen, mm-hmm. the sunsets we've seen, the dead bodies we've seen, you know, the the animals we've seen, each day I'm adding another photograph in that photo book or photo album and so I don't that that's not even a practical answer to you know you ask for something quite practical but for me it's always search out virgin snow always walk in the snow that nobody else has walked in Mm -hmm. Mark what do you think about today's times uh, in which we are living Uh, everyone is holed up in their houses do you see a new world emerging in terms of making films where do you see filmmaking heading towards? Yeah, I mean, I think we're living in it. First of all, for me, it's quite an emotional time. You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm safe. I've got a house. I'm, I've, I'm not particularly sick at the moment. You know, etc. And I'm not, you know, so I'm not in the middle of the tragedy. But I find that I'm more moved. I'm crying more at things. I'm more yeah. upset at things on TV, etc. Yeah. So. You know, we're living in a high emotional time, and I think that's good for filmmakers. We need to register that whatever way we can, make notes, 
you know, record video diaries just so that we can hold on to this moment. Because mm. in 20 years' time, hopefully, people will begin to forget this um, mm. crisis. And therefore, we can describe the story. Um, so that's the first thing, the high emotions. The second thing I would say is, because we're locked in our houses, this is stimulating our visual imaginations. If you think there's been a lot of literature and writing about imprisonment, for if, whether it's the great French writer Marcel Proust writing about the world from his bed, or um, Oscar Wilde writing the Ballad of Reading Jail from his prison cell, for example, you know, mm-hmm. uh, lots of people... Lots of art has been created under circumstances of imprisonment. Mm -hmm. The great Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi has made several very good films under house arrest. So we as people, as visual people, we have to say to ourselves, even though we're not getting out, even though we're not seeing our friends in the real world, maybe our visual imagination is getting fuel yeah. I think it is getting fuel. I think we can use our visual imagination to escape our current limitations, but also when the crisis is over, we can talk about that. It helps us who are, you know, those of us, you and I live in countries where we are basically free, we live in democracies, etc. Yeah. But a lot of the world doesn't live in total freedom and therefore this might help us as well to empathize with them more. Do 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 you see any difference uh, or anything that might happen in the future in terms of the way the films are made? Do you see do you, and the way the film festivals are getting cancelled? Everything going digital, everything going online. Uh, the whole charm of the festival might just be now you know might just fade away. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I I mean, lots of film festivals were in recent years have been trying to think about how to reduce their carbon footprint anyway because of mm. less rates, et cetera. So I think more, all those conversations and Q&As and, and things and, and panel sessions, a lot more of those will be done digitally in the future, I think, and that's good. However, mm. um, human beings have a basic need, a desire and a need to gather with other human beings. I think it's hardwired into us from way, way, way before our recent centuries. And that won't go away. So, you know, the best bit about film festivals is people gathering in big cinemas to see movies on massive screens. That will not change. That desire will not change. And we will get back to that. I think the other stuff, the more industrial side about doing interviews and panels and Q&As and everything, a lot more of that will be done through through Skype and Zoom, etc. And I think that's good as well. Um, but I th- as I say, that profound need to have real world experiences, getting hot and sweaty and jumping up and down and getting excited, etc. with other human beings, that ain't going to go away. And what do you think about making the film, like shooting it physically? Do you think that that that's going to like change do you think we might do something digitally if the things I, don't turn out 
Yeah, I think that certain aspects of the process, so for example, the editing process, I am now editing remotely with my editor. He's sitting in his house, I'm sitting in my house, and we're sharing a screen. So that will change. I think that the the sort of more technical aspects will change. And of course, the film industry has already undergone a revolution in the last generation because of the digitalization of the process. So we can't, we're not likely to have another revolution so fast after the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the process of making the shooting of, of films won't change massively more. Mm-hmm. But all the other stuff, the meetings, having to fly to Los Angeles or Mumbai to do a meeting with an executive, that's going to change. And most of the changes will be for the better, I think, because the film industry was decadent. It had a high carbon footprint. It was full of people trying to have champagne lifestyles, <laughs> You know, and that had to change because that's just wasteful. And I think there was a lot of fat in the film industry and that fat will be cut away and that's good. It will become leaner. <laughs> Absolutely. Mark, tell me some of the best films that uh, filmmakers out there should immediately watch. For inspiration, you mean, or for... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, your, some of the best films that you think are the films that filmmakers should watch. Okay, so the first, I'm going to just say some films that come into mind. For pure entertainment, I think the most beautifully crafted entertainment film I've ever seen is probably Ninochka, a film starring yes. Gato Garbo, yeah. uh, written by Billy Wilder, etc., and directed by Ernst Lubitsch. It's wonderful, and what's yeah. great about it is it's a really generous film. Yes. I think the most beautiful film, if we're looking only, only at imagery... The perhaps the most beautiful film I have ever seen is Davy, starring Shamila Tagore, directed by Sajid Ray. Yes. Those blacks and the um, the the whites aren't so much white; they're almost like cream coloured. I think that is utterly inspiring. Mm-hmm. In terms of radicalism, in terms of you know, if you're writing a script and you're stuck and you need to shake up your own head and you don't know you want to you want to discomfort yourself there's a film called the five obstructions made in denmark uh, by lars von trier and and it's about he he challenges another film to re another filmmaker to make a short film five different ways and it's incredibly bold and daring five obstructions it's called and wow does it challenge what we think a film is uh, in terms of human content a film one of the most alive films i've ever seen one of the films that i think is most captures the life force is a film called the insect woman directed by emma shohei the great japanese director yes and One final one that I'll mention, and I think for me it's the most philosophically stimulating film that I've ever seen, and it's called A Moment of Innocence, and it's directed by the Iranian director Mohsen Makhmalbaf. All the filmmakers watch a lot of films versus demarcating uh, from influencing it in your work. How do you do that? Like uh, hoping that you know you create and get something unique out of your own work. Well, I want to be influenced by other films here's the way i see it you know i think it's it's like adding to your lexicon adding to the amount of words you have mm-hmm. as we as a child a child only has a few hundred words but as we grow up as we read more mm-hmm. we add more words into our heads 
and therefore they're available for us to use uh, to express ourselves. It's the same with cinema. Uh, the more films you watch, the more kind of almost if it sounds a stupid phrase, but visual words you have in your head, the more shots you have in your head. It means when you come to shoot a sequence, you've got more options because mm-hmm. you can imagine more things. And so I want to be, I want to be swamped and overwhelmed by other films. Yes, <laughs> I want to feel lovely. like I'm that kind of waterfall of other films. But then you're right. At a certain point, you need to, to climb out of the water because you don't want you, you don't want your film to be just a copy of another film. So many times here in, in the West, we see films and they're basically copies of Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or they're copies of Scorsese or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, they just feel like cheap imitations. So what you have to do at a certain point is in your head, imagine setting those influences aside. I actually close my eyes and imagine pushing them away and clearing the ground for me then to start making mine. But they have to be within reach because Scorsese does great things and Tarantino does great things, etc. And so they have to be within reach, but not clouding your current thought. Yeah, because it's it is so easy to get influenced by a Scorsese, by a Tarantino, uh, such strong visual filmmakers. Yes, yeah, indeed, indeed, and and there's that phrase, the anxiety of influence. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you need to be both very open and very closed, open to influence, open, open all your emotions so that you can absorb everything and get moved by everything and then close down and be quite rigorous when you're actually on location or filming or getting the shot it's mm-hmm. it sounds you know it's it's it sounds contradictory advice be open and closed but once you're actually doing it once you're being creative you can you know what it means awesome and uh, where can uh, the filmmakers listening to the podcast watch all your films well, I never knew that. I'm lucky enough to. I'm, I make so many things, you know. I make two or three films a year, yes. and so I know, for example, that women make film. My most recent one has been bought for India, yes. but I don't know which channel has bought it, for example. And mm-hmm. um, uh, and I never know where my work is showing, but I know that a lot of it's on or it's, it's streaming in places. But I'm sorry, I can't answer that because I never know. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, BFI is releasing that. That's just UK. That's just UK. Yes. And then in other countries, you know, women make films just played in Brazil and played in Spain and Finland. It's, it, lots and lots of countries. It's going to America, loads and loads of countries, Russia, China. Um, but I don't know when or how exactly. For me, this is actually a, a crucial issue. Once I've made the film, I'm so tired of it that I just love letting it go. You know, people comparing compare it to having a child. Once it grows up, it can go off into the world and look after itself. And that's slightly what I feel about the films. Mm-hmm. And also your, sto- your film, A Story of Children and Film, which was premiered in Cannes. We did not get to watch that as well. All right, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that was a nice film. That was very improvised film, and it was just about how children have appeared in cinema, all influenced by my own niece and nephew were, who uh, had a fight in my flat and it made me laugh. And so <laughs> I'm 
I made a film about them having a little fight, and yeah, it showed in it showed in lots of places, and um, yeah, it had it it just came out of literally a little moment of improvisation, and it showed in Cannes and many wow. many countries. You know, it's that's you don't know where an idea is going to come from. Uh, the the, the, the great Irish poet Seamus Heaney said, inspiration is a ball kicked in from nowhere. <laughs> and I love that. It comes from nowhere. Or anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mark, uh, a couple of advice for new filmmakers wanting to make films. Show what hasn't been seen. Mm. You know, don't tell a story if it's been told a lot. Don't copy a style if it's been done a lot. Show something that hasn't been seen, any from either from your own experience, what in your own life is unique or personal. Um, so that's the first thing. My second bit of advice is aim high. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By which I mean, you know, you know, especially if you're young, if you're 18 or 22 or 25, you can think, okay. I'm too young to tell a big story. I'll make a little short film, and then in 10 years' time, I'll be making bigger films or something. But you don't know what's going to happen in 10 years' time. So yes. I think aim high. So when I one of the first documentaries that I made for TV was in, I guess, 1994. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was about neo-Nazis and the denial of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in my 20s. I am not Jewish. I'm not a historian. Um, and can you hear there's an yes. ambulance past yes. my window? Yes. I live near a hospital, and so that happens a lot. Oh, um, mm-hmm. So I was not, I, I had not studied neo-Nazism or World War II or Hitler, but I thought I was so angry about the neo-Nazis that as a, in my mid-20s or late-20s decided to make a film about that. And... You know, it was too ambitious, perhaps. It aimed really high, but it had a really big impact. So I'd say aim high. All right. And the most challenging part, Mark, for you as a filmmaker, what is the most challenging part, which you're like, oh, God, you know, again, I have to do this. Yes. The two things that are most challenging for me, first of all, is um, avoiding banality. No what if it's a big project or a small project or anything like even that little 40 days thing which I did in half a day yes you have to try and avoid being boring and banal and repeating the old cliches that everybody's heard and that's hard sure. and that's universal no matter what one does to try and avoid banality is the most difficult bit and the second bit of my job that is really hard which I'm um I always dread is a very practical thing, which is going on stage to introduce my film in front of an audience. I have a real stage fright. I've always been shaking with nerves and I've been doing it for nearly 30 years now. And I'm still shaking with nerves every time I go on stage. And, you know, and you have to do it a lot, of course. But the reason, the way I think about that is that what makes me a good filmmaker makes me bad at being on stage. <laughs> you know, I'm quite a sort of sensitive, shy person, and that shyness shyness makes me a good filmmaker. I think it makes me alert, and it makes me notice little details. But it also makes me scared of going on stage, and so I have to accept that that's who I am and what I am. How do you find that? Because I fa- I find that hugely challenging for myself as well because I'm the same, the shy, the introvert. I, I can never go on stage. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's. I mean, I try to avoid it when I can, to be honest. You know, and I find myself embarrassingly saying no to I don't know ninety five percent of the things that I'm asked to do. I'm very honoured to be asked to do things, but I just say no because I know I'll be really nervous. But I have to ask myself: Will it do any good? Will it help my film, or is it a community of people who? don't get the chance to hear some things about cinema and if that's the case then I'll do it. So for example I was invited to um, Albania mm-hmm. when I went. I was invited to near Chernobyl you know where the nuclear disaster was. Yes. And I went. I was invited to Belarus recently which has a number of social problems and I went because the invitations came from people who were sincere they're not rich they're not meeting filmmakers all the time and therefore I'll go because it can do a bit of good. So that's how I sort of balance things out. And funding you don't find challenging? Funding? Funding your films you don't find challenging? Yeah, I do, you know, I do. It's, I get turned down a lot, you know, my mm. last... I'm editing two films at the moment. Neither of them has any funding in them at all. And we tried. We tried to get funding, but people wouldn't give them the funding, give me the funding because... They're not about famous subjects. You know, major TV stations and, and streaming organizations that I won't name have said to me, we'll give you money if you make films about famous stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, and I have made some films, like my Orson Welles film was about a famous man, but most of my work is not about famous people or famous things. You know, I've made films about city, a lot of films about cities, but they're not famous cities, for example, you know. And so um, it is hard to get funding because there's only money for famous stuff or high profile stuff or, or films about things that are already known about. And there isn't money as much money for films about subjects that are unknown and that's a problem but I'm determined to make stuff that excites me and isn't just repeating old formulae and therefore that means there'll be very little funding for my work but that's fine I live a very cheap lifestyle I don't take taxis I don't go to fancy restaurants etc it means I don't need to earn a lot of money and therefore that helps me again buy my creative freedom Thank you so much uh, for your time. I, I truly appreciate this. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure talking to you, Sushita. for this episode I hope this episode enriched you if you wish to reach out to Mark you know where to find him on his Twitter handle Mark Cousins and of course we're going to put the link of 40 days to learn film in our description you must watch that you can rate us on Apple it enables us to reach more people and of course you can subscribe us on all the 15 podcasting platforms that we are present on from Apple to Spotify to Hubhopper to everything else is there in the description 
And as suggested by one of our listeners, Amir, that if we tell in advance who's going to be the next episode, it will enable them to find more about the guest. So here you go. In our next episode, we're going to have the musician Marcus Miller, fantastic jazz musician who combines mathematics to create music. So go find him on the internet, uh, see how he makes music, fantastic jazz music. And I'm going to see you guys with this next episode next week. But do keep in your suggestions rolling in. 